0: Hello and welcome to GC Stories, the podcast where we speak to security services professionals with an extraordinary tale to tell. My name is John Watkins, the editor of Global Custodian. And in this series, we've got custody, prime brokerage, all sorts of banking executives who have stories to tell from former undercover police officers to ex-professional athletes. These truly are fascinating stories. And those who are telling them also have some amazing wisdom to impart. Particularly in times like this, I think it never hurts to listen to something inspirational and uplifting. I hope as many people listen to this while running, cooking or in their downtime as they do during their working day. Now before we get started, I'd just like to thank our partners in this project, Smartstream, the provider of transaction processing solutions and services to the financial community. They have been incredibly supportive of this series, just as they have with their own clients through this difficult period with the global pandemic. You know, their own story is one of stepping up when they needed to, reacting fast, being reliable, making sure their customers were prioritized during this period. So a big well done to Smartstream for informing and supporting the industry during this time. And of course, for their support of this series too. Today, we're speaking with Vanessa Van Brunt, who after serving 10 years as the first female police officer in Cranford, New Jersey, made the somewhat unusual jump to Wall Street, where she then held senior roles in banking and asset management with the likes of Wells Fargo and BlackRock. Now, her police career included a variety of assignments patrol, detective work, undercover assignments, narcotics task forces, and first responder duty during 9 11, supporting the NYPD. Now, similarly, her business experience encompasses a broad range of executive roles in middle market lending, alternative asset classes, and liquidity management. These days, Van Brunt is founder of From the Street to the Street, where she merges her worlds by taking real-world law enforcement experiences and applying it to business situations. She also conducts seminars and executive coaching sessions on topics including leadership, success strategies for women in male dominated occupations, and negotiation tactics. Vanessa Van Brunt, welcome to the podcast. How are you?
1: Thank you, John. It's an honor to be here with Global Custodian and yourself.
0: Well, it's an honour to have you on and uh, you delivered the keynote address at our New York Awards two years ago and there were 200 people in the room that day and I'm so glad that now the rest of our audience can hear your story and, and tap into your wisdom uh through this podcast because it is quite a story to say the least uh you've clearly learned a lot on this journey and it's now enabled you to share your insights through coaching mentoring and, and speaking at events like ours and through uh mediums like this podcast so we really appreciate you being a guest today and uh, i'm I'm really excited to have this conversation
1: no thank you it's it's uh i i appreciate um the fact that this is now going to go to a global audience um it's it's interesting as i I bridge constantly my two worlds, the world of, of finance and the world of law enforcement. And my uh, my friends who were in law enforcement, they're fascinated by all the, the stories and the knowledge of those in finance. My friends in finance, they don't want to spend time talking to others and finance and accountants and bankers and, and hedge funders and, you know, investors and allocators. They talk to those all day. They want to talk to my police friends. So when I have um, parties at my house, it is a very eclectic mix uh, of, of individuals and some really fascinating conversations.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess you can put both hats on depending on who you're talking to.
1: That's right, exactly. I can I can uh, uh, translate between the two
0: worlds. So. Yeah, well, we've got some really exciting guests on this series, but your story is unique, and I cannot wait to get into it. But Vanessa, the, the date we're recording this is the 15th of June. Uh, I don't expect the episode to come out for about a month or so, but we're, we're at a time now where there is a worldwide movement uh, occurring to address racial inequality, which I'm sure will not be going away anytime soon, and certainly not by the time this is published. And of course, this was sparked by a now infamous episode of police brutality in, in the U.S. with the, the death of George Floyd. And we're going to be talking in depth about your career in the police force. And I appreciate, I really appreciate this, actually, that you, you want to address the current situation, talk about it right away rather than avoid it, which I, I do really commend you for. Um, so I guess I'll give you the, the stage now as a, as a former police officer living in New York. What is your perspective on what is occurring in the U.S. at the moment?
1: yeah and, and i I appreciate the fact that um you know you you're offering me a platform to to speak on it because it's certainly not the um the thesis of this podcast um and not when it was imagined, but uh circumstances um that exist now you know i i think it would be i'd be um remiss if i i didn't at least uh touch on it um I can tell you that in the police community without exception, um, and I've spoken with a lot of of police officers, uh, both both retired and active right now, you know, there is, you know, universal outrage at uh, the Minneapolis situation. And that takes many different forms. There's, you know, a human form of, um, you know, how can just one human do that to another? There is a law enforcement um, thought process, since we're trained in use of force and standard operating procedures. And um, a lot of um, my friends have advanced certification in teaching a lot of techniques. And I certainly learned them in the academy and and afterwards. And, you know, what we saw and what was done is um, just something that is not only not taught, but it's something that's prohibited in most departments. And you train around that to not to not do those um, types of of uh, restraints. And uh, so that needs to be said, first of all, Um, that leads to obviously a broader question around police reform. There's no easy answers to that. I am constantly in favor of continuous police reform. I think that this audience in particular um, has a a good analogy to that where everyone in some way, shape or form who's been in this industry for a number of years has been through uh, financial industry reform after some horrible um Global events in 2008, and you think about in our industry, um, you know, the the Madoff scandal and how, uh, you know, that started a lot of very difficult and very important dialogue, which led to a lot of the rules and regulations and informal expectations around behavior and uh, custodial oversight, uh, internal controls, and I'm I'm not comparing the death of individuals to you know the you know the monetary assets of of an allocator uh or a an investor by any means but um the there are some really interesting parallels that have hit me because a lot of it is trust and it broke my heart in 2008 when bankers and those in the financial industry were absolutely vilified and, you know, all in one group, the good along with the bad. And, you know, trust was broken and a lot of individuals failed to trust their financial institution. And we're seeing that come to the forefront in policing and, you know, community policing has been something that's gathered a lot of steam over the years and has had some very successful results. But, you know, we as a law enforcement community do need to work at reestablishing trust, reestablishing partnerships. Um, And that's a a long, long, long journey. And it's going to require a lot of, of work, for law enforcement as well as the the citizens um that being said my heart aches for you know the vast 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 majority of good officers who are out there literally putting their lives on the line um in the face of of anger um again those in, in this industry 12 years ago we saw that you're trying you're you're good in your your job and you're trying to help your client you're trying to help your customer and there's you know new rules and regulations and you know you get tainted by the same um, brush uh, as someone who had done something illegal in financial services and it was a so those are the parallels, I think. But, you know, I, I look forward to working with a lot of my uh, my colleagues. I'm still in contact with a lot of organizations that um, are involved in policing, including the the PBA, the Police Benevolent Association, which I'm a member of. And um, I, I think that there's a lot of, of great partnerships that can ultimately result from this.
0: Yeah, thanks. And I know there's a lot of angles to talk about and explore with this, but I appreciate that as a former police officer, you addressed this and considering the uh, conversations we're about to have and get onto that you gave us your take on that. So so thanks. Now I want to get onto your story though, Vanessa, and and thankfully we're going to do this chronologically. Otherwise I would legitimately (laughs) not know where to start. I really wouldn't. But you became the first female officer in the department in Cranford, New Jersey. Could you start by explaining to me what your journey was like to get to that point, and where did you develop this trailblazer ambition that you've demonstrated multiple times throughout your life?
1: I became a police officer in 1993. Um, at that point, probably only about two percent of uniformed officers in New Jersey were um, women. So it was a a very unique perspective that I had, and that citizens had for me. Um, in fact, I. I have my uh, my master's degree in criminal justice uh, from Rutgers University, and my thesis was on citizen perceptions of female police officers because it was such a bizarre sighting for um, individuals on the street. I mean, I had people coming up to me asking, you know, can I take my picture with you? I've never seen a female officer before. Uh, you know, now it's it's so common, and female officers in the media are constantly depicted. But it was, uh, you know, truly a um, an odd sight. And um, I I remember, you know, sometimes when I would be on the phone calling someone from the police department, even though I identified myself, it was very difficult because a lot of times they would, um, the person I was speaking with, would think I was a dispatcher because a large percentage of the dispatchers were female. Um so I had, you know, a lot. Of, I I walked into one call once, and someone, not offensively, it was just such a shock that I was there, and and she said, "Oh, girl cops, how cute," you know. And then she, you know, she apologized, but that's just a shock, you know, a constant, uh, you know, uh, awareness that I would I would have to deal with and every time I pulled up and got out of a, a radio car. Um, I there weren't a lot of of female officer role models at that time. Um, And I actually predates 1993 because I became involved when I was in high school. So now we're going back to, frighteningly enough, it's it's a long time ago, 1986, uh, 1985, 1986, with an organization called Police Explorers. And that's um, an organization run by the Boy Scouts of America that it's for both genders but you participate in um, different activities it's sponsored by uh, an organization in my case Cranford Police Department and it's kind of like junior police (laughs) Um, you know you have a little uniform you can go on ride-alongs you help out at township you know fairs with directing you know people on the sidewalk or telling them where to go or and you go through all kinds of of um you know training and guest lectures and i i loved it and i was told you know that's what i wanted to do at that point because of that experience and i was told many times um you know that you know you can't do it or there there's not going to be you know a female officer um it, it just i fortunately i have a um it's sometimes good and sometimes bad a lot of times i don't listen to people <laughs> um so you have to understand which voices to listen to and which which voices to drown out um so i uh it, it it that in particular made me more determined and um i went through college and i was halfway finished with my masters in criminal justice i was uh pretty young at the time i was 21 and um i was uh hired and went through the police academy. So, um, you know, there was never a thought in my mind around, I want to be a trailblazer or I want to do something that's a very non-traditional, just like I think everything in life, you're exposed to something. And I was exposed to some phenomenal police officers at the time who I had an enormous amount of respect for, who got me involved and supported me. um, and, you know I think I think everyone has a situation like that where there's people who impact your life and it affects what you decide to do for for a living.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the work was challenging, and I know your police career included the likes of detective work, undercover assignments, narcotics task forces, some fascinating stuff there. What were the the standout experiences during those events, and how was your skill set growing during this time?
1: Just like anyone who's involved in growth you don't realize how much you've grown or how much of a different skill set you've developed until later when you're actually applying it to a different situation. Um, Without a doubt, once I went into finance post MBA, um, it was very interesting because I was using techniques that were so, common to me um you're taught and, and and it was so unusual for in finance um you know i as you mentioned i had worked um in uh the union county narcotic strike force and we did uh undercover narcotics and um a lot of that is you know surveying things building you know building a case understanding mapping out you know, who's who, who's what, who are the, we'll call them, you know, the, um, the key individuals, um, in a, um, uh, a chain of, um, you know, drug operations, you know, who do you want to focus on? Who are the key? Well, all of a sudden I went into banking and I was hired by Wachovia, which eventually was acquired by Wells Fargo during the global financial crisis. And, um, I was um, one of the individuals in the first two years that started the New York office. They didn't have banking offices there. So I didn't have contacts. I didn't have prospects. I, I had to, you know, figure it out myself. I didn't know any accountants. I didn't know any attorneys. I didn't know um, any CFOs. So I had to rely on myself and I used those same techniques. I, you know, would get, you know, done in Bradstreet, you know, documents and map out, you know, who do I want to talk to at these, um, at these companies? Who do I want to talk to at these firms? How can I approach them? How can I find them? Um, How can I get in their vicinity? What's their circle? You know, where are their influences? Who are the key decision makers? And I was, you know, fortunately, um, quite successful in, in doing that. And that's actually what led me into uh, specializing in alternative asset managers uh, was that, you know, no one else was covering them uh, for the most part. And, you know, this is before Wells had prime brokerage and a lot of the the services it, it had, it has now, but um, no one was actively covering them. So I really self-taught myself and, um said so, well there's a lot of them here in New York let's let me figure it out <laughs> and uh slowly that's what i did so um you know that that was a you know the types of skills that that mapped i think you know some of the standout experiences that i had i mean there's there's negative and there's positive ones you know everyone wants to hear police stories <laughs> constantly um you know in a lot of those cases i mean you're dealing with with sadly with death very often. And later on, um, I very often had individuals who came back to me and where I was present when, you know, a loved one, you know, had passed away at home or, um, you know, usually not that tragically and suddenly, you know, very often after an illness or something. And I, I, you know, sort of remember the call. I barely, you know remember the call ten years later, but they remembered me and the response and you know the compassion that, that you tried to show them so um you know those are a lot of the the negatives that you can turn into positives you know when you're out there
0: yeah this the, the skill set must be so broad to have that emotional side and that empathy you know connecting with people, but then the next minute you're taking on a, a different role or action and trying to prevent something else from happening, whether it's a negotiation or, or an arrest. So the learning at this stage must have been pretty intense.
1: Yeah, that's, that's incredibly perceptive. And, you know, someone who calls the police and they arrive on the scene, you don't know or understand the call that that individual just came from, you know, police or human. So it's not an unusual day to be, you know, sitting with a family who, you know, um, they just woke up and, you know, their, their father passed or grandfather passed away overnight. And you're dealing with this immense grief to next going to a house where there's a neighborhood dispute because someone's clothesline is two inches over a property line and they're screaming at each other. And to go from there to, you know, a, uh, you know, you're called into another situation where someone says, you know, here's, a child that, you know, we think potentially has, uh, you know, has been neglected or abused and your, you know, the way you speak, the words you use, um, you know, your tone of, of voice, the, you know, the way you approach it has to be, you have to almost be a chameleon and, um, to make connections with all those community members and, and meet them where they are in, uh, you know in terms of the the reason that they called you because the you know the the individual who has that municipal violation of a clothesline, line to them this is the most important thing happening in their day <laughs> to me considering everything else that i've i've just dealt with and will be dealing with in the next 12 hour shift that might not be the most the highest priority so um you learn a, a a lot about what ultimately can help you in customer service without a doubt
0: now you mentioned some of the transferable skills and and within that uh you know in the police, you might need to enter a property, make an instant decision, react on the spot, and then with the undercover assignments, I'm assuming there was a lot more prep work study and research and and time spent on that, so you have that mixture of needing to know how to respond instantly, but also. Yeah, you have the skills to assess and evaluate. So that must be something you're able to bring over to your financial services career as well.
1: Police work has been described as hours and hours of boredom, followed by moments of sheer terror, followed by hours of paperwork. <laughs> and, you know, you, you see that, you know, when you're doing undercover narcotics and there's a wire, uh, you know, you're doing a wiretap, uh, you can sit there for Hours and hours or an entire shift and nothing happens, but you have to be there in case something, you know, a conversation happens or you're doing surveillance and you're sitting there and watching and nothing's going on. And and so you're just waiting for the person to come for the next shift and relieve you, but you go home and, you know you're bored out of your mind because all you, it's not glamorous. All you did was sat there in the cold, you know, all, all shift, um, you know, trying to, to understand and build, but that's, you know, that's what good police work is. And um, you do have to, some of it is that, and it's laborious and, you know, it takes a lot of time. Some of it is just very quick and you're called into a situation and you have to respond, Immediately, you know, when when I was first hired in 1993, Newark, New Jersey, which is uh, about a 10 minute ride from from Cranford, was the stolen car capital of the United States, and um, things were very different now th- at that point in terms of whether you were able to pursue cars. Um, the New Jersey State Attorney General, um, since came out a few years after I uh, became a police officer, had come out with different guidelines and. Um, limited the number of of pursuits and the reasons that you could pursue a car but when i was first hired um it was you know it was um legal for the police to you know pursue any car almost that uh that took off so um you know we would constantly have uh cars that would come in from the Newark area and they were looking to steal other cars and then go back to Newark so we had um a number of of high speed pursuits back to Newark and in Newark and you know ones that, that at today due to the um the high possibility of a civilian injury or or a, a crash, they wouldn't be allowed under current guidelines. But back then, you know, you could be sitting in your car doing absolutely nothing and all of a sudden you look up and you see a car drive by and you run the plate and it's a stolen plate and they see you looking at them and within 2 minutes you're driving up you know the Garden State Parkway for those who are familiar with it uh for those who aren't since this is a global audience um you know it's a you know six lane six lane highway um and you're you know going 100 120 miles an hour trying to catch this car that you know turns off its headlights so that you can't you know see it and uh you know, that's very different from that narcotics uh, situation that I described to you. When you're doing a lot of surveillance and report writing, and an investigation could take six months.
0: <laughs> well, certainly that example is uh, probably the assumptions that our a global audience would have for a, a New York, uh, New York or New Jersey police officer. You know, less, less paperwork and more high-speed chases down uh, six six-lane motorways.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's and 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 look, that's that's what the media portrays because nobody wants to watch. on TV, a police officer doing reports for an hour. You know, the Nielsen ratings on that would be horrible. Um, So they they show obviously a fictionalized version, but um, they show those moments of, of action and and terror, not the the hard police work behind those moments.
0: <laughs> well, look, Vanessa, I knew this would happen. You, you've drawn me into asking lots of how, what, why, when questions to everything you've been saying, but I'll uh, I'll try and get back on track with some of the questions I wanted to ask you. And and to move on, um, you were you were first responder? You were on first responder duty during 9/11, supporting the NYPD. Could you talk me through what you went through during that time and, and what you saw happen to others around you? Um who are performing these duties in such a such a difficult and challenging time and environment
1: that was uh you know when you asked me previously some of the the standout experiences or the highlights um that definitely is one uh for my career and one thing I want to emphasize i I was uh like new york Police department port authority Police department other local new york um, departments in New York Fire City Fire Department. Um, I, I was not there when the the towers fell. I had actually um, worked the in New Jersey. I worked the the midnight shift the night before, and that means I I went home and went to bed at 5 a.m. and it, at um, 8 a.m. my phone rang and I was you know in a, a fog <laughs> and delirious. And I was due back at work that night at at five. I worked five at night to five in the morning, 12 hour shifts and uh it was my mother and she you know told me to turn the TV on and I saw what was going on and uh then the department called and said that you know everyone's on on recall they wanted us to to sleep but um and at that point it was uh a uh, a very scary situation because you know not only you know and in, in, I'll take a step back in in the city um the bravery of the officers, the departments that I just mentioned, the bravery of individual civilians, many of whose stories we will never know, because sadly, many of them passed um, when the towers collapsed. Um, There's so many individual stories of, of heroics that what I personally did afterwards, you know, I went in, it was about a day and a half after um the towers collapsed. We went in to support the Port Authority Police Department, which uh they owned the land that the World Trade Center's on. So um, you know, they were working the operation along with NYPD. Um what they did um does not even compare to what myself and my colleagues did. But eventually um you know they needed obviously a significant amount of support. So um f- with uh new jersey state um it you was know, New Jersey state police local um police officers the new jersey state p b a you know they sent in officers to help with um a lot of of um you know just anything that really needed to be done <laughs> and some of it was feeding some of it was bringing down you know uh gas for the generators that we had to run at night you know you were just doing whatever needed to be done and I learned you know, that was the, what I hope, what is and what I hope will be the largest um, police operation in the history of, you know, the United States. But I learned so much about um, leadership, um, about controlling your emotions. Keep in mind that, you know, you had police officers and firefighters who are working in the rubble, whose colleagues were buried in that rubble. And, um, you know, the the grief that they were going through yet staying true to their duty um, was unbelievable. And I do when I speak, I, I have different um, different themes that I speak to different audiences on. But when I'm speaking to some audiences of of managers and senior managers or senior executives, you know, I talk a lot about leader crisis leadership. And I saw so many instances of that because there's no playbook for this. You are resource constrained. You are dealing with um, a employee population that is filled with grief, that, um, you know, has to, that are are absolutely taxed in terms of their emotions, in terms of, of, um, you know, what they need to do. And also realizing that, this is something that's gonna last for you know days months, years you know and it's it's something that will their world will never be the same um and i I'll just bring in one interesting police story, which is actually probably one of my favorite um i I use it for myself for motivation, but um one of the fascinating things that I saw was the use of police canines there, and um most of your audience probably knows, but in case they don't, you know, police canines are trained very specifically for a, um, a specific skill. So you might have a bomb sniffing dog, a narcotics dog, a tracking dog. All of those are, are completely different animals. And what's used in, um, searching for Um, individuals who are alive in rubble in the event of you see that during a a earthquake or something, um, those are urban search and rescue dogs. And not every department has those because obviously you usually need, you know, tall buildings. So most areas that have them are, um, you know, FEMA or federal emergency management has them and, you know, so do large departments. So San Francisco, you think about Los Angeles, Miami, obviously New York, um, Newark, you know, you know, a lot of sheriff's departments have them at the county level. So, um, but they're not the most common dogs to have. So you have um, a, a you know mutual aid system for you know they've trained and they operate for uh, actually North all, all of North America. Where if there's a, a mass casualty incident like that, that they would call you know all different dogs from areas of the country while leaving dogs behind. You know, just in case something happens in that jurisdiction, you can't say all the dogs from California come to New York because if there is a building collapse in San Francisco, you have to have canines in that vicinity because, you know, this is, you know, this is not recovery dogs. This is rescue dogs. You're assuming that there might be some live people. So, I mean, not to be melodramatic, but literally seconds count. (laughs) Um, So. You know, obviously, immediately, all the dogs from New York and all the local dogs came, and they put out a uh, you know a a call to for mutual aid, and it was directed, and you know, okay, you know, uh, it was Mexico, it was Canada, it was the United States, and it was okay, you know, um, you know, Montreal, send us two dogs, you know, Sacramento, send us one dog, you know, uh, you know. Miami send us a dog. So they have all these dogs responding from all over the country, but keep in mind that the planes weren't flying post nine eleven, So the only thing these handlers could do was to throw their dogs in the car and drive lights and sirens at a hundred miles an hour till they got to the scene. So over time, a lot of these canines were continuing to um, arrive, but the, the, you had what you had, you only had a a finite number of of these resources, and the dogs got tired there was a a veterinary tent where they were giving them uh you know hydration and i v therapy and you know cleaning their feet and giving them kevlar booty so that you know the burning rubble didn't you know um you know destroy the pads on their feet but um they were exhausted their handlers were exhausted, and if you've seen dogs, they have a very tight relationship with their handler. And I saw it once. So I saw this once. So I I thought it was just something I saw. I've since realized, um, there's a a notation in the, um, in the, uh, museum, uh, in downtown Manhattan, that's uh, dedicated to the World Trade Center, um, that the dogs would be looking and looking and they got depressed. And you literally saw these dogs getting depressed because their excitement is to find a um find someone alive, and very sadly, that wasn't happening, so they're exhausted, they're being worked their handlers are trying to keep them going as much as possible, and they're losing energy constantly, and they had no victory so um I saw one of the handlers had a rescuer go and hide in the rubble, and he brought the dog along, and the dog the The rescuer popped up, you know the dog signaled the rescuer popped up, and there was a success he found <laughs> he found someone, and you literally saw the dog perk up. It was like the dog went from zero to all of a sudden ten with the level of energy, and he shot off looking for someone else and I said, "Wow, for managerial um skill sets." you literally sometimes with your teams need to hide a rescuer. Sometimes you need to create a synthetic success. You know, if you have a team and they're doing the right thing and they're not having a success and they're dejected, you have to start thinking about how do I create victories? How do I, you know, how do I create successes for my team? How do I redirect goals? If if you don't hit your goals constantly and it's not your fault, if you're doing the right things, how do I keep this employee motivated? So, you know, I always just say to some of these managers, sometimes you just need to, you know, hide a rescuer somewhere and, uh, you know, encourage your, uh, your team.
0: Wow, what a story and a powerful message. And like you say, sometimes there's no playbook. Sometimes you have to innovate and and think on your feet.
1: Absolutely. And you need to take care of yourself. Sometimes you need to realize that, that you're starting to get worn down and uh, you need to, you know, to give yourself a a, a success and create one for yourself as well.
0: Yeah, and, and you've mentioned your move from the police force to wall street or street to the street as you've trademarked, what skills did you take over? And could you tell us, was there a moment that prompted the move?
1: I was a full-time student before I became a police officer. So, um, all of a sudden, I was hired as a police officer, and I was making—I was thrilled and amazed to be making a salary of twenty-eight thousand dollars a year. And I said to myself, "What am I going to do with all this money? <laughs> you know, so much money. What am I going to do?" So I had never—I was a, a double major, in political science and history. Then I went for a master's in criminal justice. Had never taken a business or economics course. And um, what I—I I said, let me figure this out. So I bought some kind of off the shelf, you know, very simple individual finding, uh, individual investing magazines, very basic ones, and I started reading them and I I opened a um an account and I started buying some stocks. And there wasn't the, even the internet at that point. I would wait for the paper to be delivered the you know, the next morning to you know, I'd rush down to the end of my driveway to, you know, look up the um, you know the tables and see you know what the what the stock or, you know what did it close at yesterday? How much do I have? Yes, <laughs> so I do that every day and manually figure it out. Um, and it, you know it was a, you know I made I listened to some good experts. Um, it was a bull market, so that certainly helps. It wasn't by any means you know skill or acumen on my part. And um, eventually, at the age of 25, I had made enough money to buy my own house, you know, the right way with 20% down, which is the standard here in the U S and, um, my, and and, again, all on a a cop salary. Um, my police officer friend said to me, you know, a lot of them started saying, Hey, you know, I want, I want money. I'm I'm 40 years old. I'm living with my mom. You know, I, I don't have any investments. I have credit card debt, you know, can you help me? So just informally, again, during a lot of those boring times of police work, I would just um, give informal advice and show an officer how to start a mutual fund account. And then they would bring me their wives 401ks and ask me to reallocate that or, you know, questions about insurance. And I was continuing to self, you know, Um, Teach myself. You have to be a lifelong learner, and I was learning more things. And then cops from other towns were asking me to help them. You know, word kind of gets around. I was familiar with the pension system. I was familiar with the retirement structure and what they needed. You know, in in terms of long, you know, long term savings. And um, then the attorneys at the prosecutor's office would ask me to help. (laughs) You know, I was. Eventually, I had sixty kind of quote unquote informal clients. I never charged anyone. Um, I was just, you know, um, you know, sometimes people would call the police desk asking for me to give them a call, you know, an officer I don't even know because they had had a question. And, um, you know, um, so I, I kind of had like an informal client base. And someone said to me, you know, you are really an idiot because people would pay you for this. And I went, you know what? Yeah, I'm a capitalist. <laughs> you know, you, wait, let, me, let me figure this out. So I was working um, four days on, four days off, twelve-hour shifts. It was five at night to five in the morning. And I said, "Hmm, I bet I could get a job during the day as a, you know, at that point they were they were called uh, at that point they were called stockbrokers, and uh, not financial consultants or financial advisors as they are today." And I started interviewing, and I needed a very flexible schedule. Um, uh, academically, you know. On my resume, I didn't have any degrees or anything that would, um, you know, make someone think that I had a background. I was self-taught. So I, I heard no, 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 no. And finally, I went to one firm and um, I was interviewed by the the hiring partner there. And, you know, he looked at my resume and then he looked at me and he said, you know, you're a police officer. And he kind of looked over his glasses at me. He was, and I said, yes, sir. And he says, you're a police officer now? And I said, yes, sir. And I'm thinking, he's gonna just throw me right out of his office. And he throws the resume down, he throws his glasses down and he looks, he points and he looks at me in a really gruff manner. And he says, let me tell you something. My entire family is NYPD and NYFD, and they're all retired by now. I'm the only idiot still sitting here working. And that was it. So he hired me and I got licensed through FINRA and um, started working during the day for uh, for his firm. And I, I loved what I was doing, but I needed a, a springboard to jump into uh, the world of finance i wanted to work with institutional investors so i went back part time for my my mba while i was uh believe it or not while i was still doing both of those uh jobs police work at night and you know i would i would take i take you know hours of my vacation time to go to class and you know <laughs> 3 hours of vacation time and um i had incredibly supportive coworkers and bosses who who helped me manage that crazy schedule and um when I I finished, um, I wasn't sure if I was going to leave the police department. I was at 10 years. You can retire in New Jersey with a deferred pension at 10 years. Um, and I did on-campus interviews through, uh, Rutgers University Career Center and, uh, it was a tough job market. It was post 9-11 and I was fortunate to be hired into an associate position at, uh, Wachovia Bank and, uh, you know, it's been a very for me, it's just been a very um interesting journey where each step leads to the next step. But when you look at it, it looks like this, you know, huge gap of jumping from one thing to the other. But it's years and years of getting a small skill set, getting a small certification, meeting one person, meeting someone else. I, I remember The first time I I went for an interview in finance, I was walking and I kind of had to buy a a new, you know, suit. And I glanced in in the mirror and. I, I saw myself, I literally started giggling. I thought I looked so funny in business clothes. It was just, I'd, I'd worn a uniform for my whole life. So, um, you know, it was, it was learning a, a, a whole new world and a whole new way to have to interact with, with people.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned you're learning uh, and adapting to a new way of interacting. Can I ask, and it may sound like a strange question, but was there anything you had to unlearn at this time to, you know, thrive in this new environment?
1: Yeah, I I absolutely did. Um and it it took a while because it wasn't as obvious as what skill sets did I learn that were transferable and which ones were not going to work in the private sector. Um I think that the private sector, especially finance, it moves a lot quicker than government does. Um I had to, you know, get used to the the speed um that things happen. Um i it was interesting just in a lot many of the human experiences and dealing with people just just like we talked about with um working with with individuals that have incredibly different backgrounds and incredibly different life views and being able to communicate with them and being able to to meet them where they are to to exchange information um, and work together that was transferable. What wasn't transferable is in the police department ultimately you know you if if you're if someone's going to be arrested, <laughs> you try to get them to comply if they don't want to comply and you try every which way eventually they get arrested you know there's there comes a point where they're not going to comply they're going to keep doing what they're doing um and boom you you can just arrest them you don't have that power in the private sector so the power of persuasion you know in the in my detective life i had to learn interview and interrogation techniques and i literally had to try to get someone to confess to something and there's no benefit to them in confessing that they did a crime they know full well that you're going to be charged you're going to you know it's going to be adjudicated um I said to myself, wow, going into the private world, I'm trying to sell them banking products. You know, I'm trying to sell them depository or custodial products. This this should be easy. You know, I I just, you know, it's gonna be so easy to convince them because this is something that's good for them. Well, that wasn't the case. It wasn't <laughs> it wasn't quite that easy. And um ultimately the client held much more of the power than I did. Um and even just small, small social Things um, that I had to get used to. You know, networking was huge. I, you know, I remember it took me probably two or three years to. When I was at a function, you're you're taught in the police academy to stand in a bladed position, and that's for police or military. What does that mean? It means when you're standing talking to someone, you're standing with your legs with one leg slightly behind the other, with your gun hip away from a suspect that way, if they make a move for your weapon, you're already, you already have some extra distance and you can, you know, hopefully twist your hip further away from them and and keep the, the firearm away. And, um, you know, it has a lot to do obviously with weapon retention. So, but you're taught that so often and, and anyone who's participated in wrestling or, or, you know, judo also knows you're keeping your center of gravity low constantly to, you know, if someone tries to push you over you're, you know, you're establishing a a center of gravity. So, but standing like that looks very defensive, (laughs) but that's the way that I stood. And that's the way you're trained to stand. And that was just the way I stood, you know, constantly 24 hours a day. Well, in networking situations, it doesn't look very inviting, <laughs> you know, it, so I had to retrain all of these little things to, well, I had to become conscious of them, that I was doing them, and then, you know, and, and it was even more difficult, because I was going into a world of, of male-oriented, um, you know, another male, male-oriented occupation, um, for me, it, it, you know, my running joke is that, um, you know, people say, wow, you know, finance is such a male dominated occupation. And coming from the world of of policing, I always say, wow, I've I've never been around more estrogen in my life that this is wonderful. I I can work with so many women now. Um, So it it depends on what your benchmark is, I guess. But, um, you know, when I first started, I had rarely worked with a woman who was not in a support position um, in terms of, of, you know, staff. So, you know, there was you know, obviously some female police officers towards the end of my career um, that I was working with, but I always worked with men primarily. And I had to, I was saying, well, how does a woman dress in business? How do you interact? And I joined, uh, um, when I was uh, in business school, I joined a group called the Financial Women's Association. And I came in and I was a little bit of a fish out of water. I was looking at how do they dress? What do they wear? Do you wear pantyhose or not, do you, you know, um, you know, how do you uh, you know, um run a um, meeting? How do you do this? So it was, it was all the business skills that I needed, but also looking at some of these senior women who were very successful in their own careers and how they worked within the organization. So um, you know, and, and I, I had to, it was police work is a very especially then was a much more masculine occupation than it is today. Um it, you know, Still certainly is. But, um, you know, I had to, you know, soften things up um, a bit, which which was, you know, my my true personality. Um, I wasn't being dishonest to myself, but just at different stages of life. And when you're working in different places, you, you know, have to learn to adapt to uh, to the environment you're in.
0: Yeah, and, and you put yourself out of your comfort zone there. That That's probably something you're used to. I'm, I'm slowly learning from your story. But you I mean, you had to start from the bottom again here. Uh, was there any ever, ever any hesitation, any nerves? Did you view it as a tough environment to step into despite what you've been through in the police force?
1: You know, I think I probably should answer yes, but I'm going to answer no because I, I just don't think I even thought of it or consider it. It's just you're mission driven. You know, everything I did, I wanted to do. Um, I, I had a, a a burning desire to do it and an opportunity presented itself to me. And I did. I think if I had sat down and looked at a um, a map, a trajectory of what my career was going to be, I would have I would have been. You know, overwhelmed. You know, I would have said, you know, how can I prepare for that? How can I do all of that? This this is going to be impossible. I think, yeah, you know, with every long journey. I mean, you see that with with project managers. They take this huge, complex issue or this huge, complex um, project, and they break it down into all of these tiny, small steps, which, um, each one individually is doable, and each one of these little steps you can have a, a um an accomplishment that leads to the next one and absent that previous accomplishment you couldn't succeed in the, the the next step so um i think that just kind of happened to me um you know now and again i think it's it's also being you know in my 20s and you just think that you can just take over the entire world <laughs> you know you can do you know I, I think i think now i would be i'm i'm not completely risk averse but i probably analyze risk a little more especially being in financial services a little more at the time i you know i was uh um you know just not hesitant at all to make any of the changes and was i concerned i was but at the same time i don't remember the it being part of a what keeps you up at night (laughs) Uh,
0: yeah this is as as well as been an incredible story it's inspirational and i think it's inspirational to everyone but perhaps especially for women who can look at you as a role model uh, and those that are currently working in these sectors or or looking to work in these industries you've been in and i know you're a mentor and, and you coach women now but what advice do you have for any who are looking to break into these spaces which have been such a big part of your life story
1: yeah, I think I think there's probably two messages if I, you know, when I work with, uh, um, you know, I, I I'm an adjunct professor at um, at Drew University and I'm on the board there. So I, I do work with a lot of um, university students. So, you know, 18 to 21 age range. And they're looking to get into a lot of really fascinating and interesting fields. And they they asked me for for ideas and thoughts and perspectives, and particularly going into to something that is um, where you don't see yourself. So it might be you're a woman and it's male dominated, you are, you know, black, and it's a white dominated field, you know, there's something in that field where you don't feel that you're, you know, you belong, so to speak. Um, I, there were two things. One is that you know, you do have to stand up for yourself. You know, you pick if something happens and you, it, it's, it's not right, it's not correct. Um, you need to address it right away, you know, using humor um, as much as possible, but make sure that it's addressed. At the same time, um, you have to have a lot of grace and you have to be slow to take offense. And, you know, if I... I had a great relationship I you know with um the officers I served with. They you know that's one of going back to our, our first conversation. That's one of the the reasons that I I find it so hard to believe some of this you know police brutality that I see because it's not the department that I worked in you know the the integrity level that i see sometimes um from a few of these bad actors is so different um and and the men i worked with were so incredibly supportive in so many different ways um but you do have to stand up for yourself and i i remember again without without taking offense <laughs> um i remember one one story um the i mentioned the garden state parkway it runs through uh uh, through New Jersey. And uh, that's, con- that's controlled by uh, the New Jersey state trooper. So if there's an accident, we would respond up there and just do traffic control, help anyone who's injured, get an ambulance, and they would come and take the, uh, the report. And we would often, we're often closer. So we'd be there first. And I was, I had just finished field training. I was 21 years old it was, you know, we, we worked one man radio cars. So, or one woman radio car in my case. Um, So, you know, by myself, I was maybe two to three days off field training, which is when you have a, a partner, a field training officer. So I'm brand new. I go up to an, an accident scene on the Garden State Parkway. And, you know, of course, everyone's out of their cars and, you know, everyone's excited and wants to tell you their story simultaneously. And, you know, usually you kind of, you don't want to have them walk through the whole story because they're going to have to do it with the trooper who's ultimately going to be writing the report. So one gentleman in particular was extremely hyperactive and extremely irate. And I, in fact, I, I think it was his fault that the accident happened, um, ironically enough. But he was just screaming and yelling and that it was everyone else's fault. And I kept trying telling him to calm down and just wait. And so the trooper got there and he got out and this is, he was, you know, Six foot five, three hundred pounds, ex-college linebacker, you know, uh, right out of Central Casting in terms of being a, you know, this huge police, you know, male police officer with a military haircut, and the guy who was in the accident came running up to him and just babbling at him again, just constant, just you couldn't even understand what he was saying, and you know, he points at me and he says, and I tried to tell this lady, and. It didn't even register with me, but the trooper looked at him and in this huge booming voice, he looked down at him and he said, that is not a lady. That is a police officer. And you'll refer to her that way. <laughs> and the guy just stopped and looked at him. Now, I it didn't even register in my mind that I had to, you know, I had to Ask or demand that respect, because again, keep in mind that women were—it not was not common—and he, you know, I was just some lady, you know. But um, you know, I—I I, those are the things that, on a going-forward basis, I would do. And I think it's also very important for allies, and you know, for I had a lot of my male officers who, when I would have an issue with someone in the general public, you know, not always because I was a woman, but just because it's a—you know—not everyone you're meeting in police work is. Um, incredibly uh, friendly or, you know, they're the the client isn't always right. Sometimes you do have to make an arrest Um, that the guys I worked with, you know, defended me and, you know, demanded respect on, on my behalf. And, you know, the other thing that I would, I would say to, um, to young women who were, you know, looking to get into, into that field. um, It's a great, People look at being different as a potential negative, and there's, trust me, there's many different ways that it's it's difficult being a a minority in a um, in an occupation. But at the same time, you can differentiate yourself so much. If I'm, it wasn't uncommon for me to be in a a, bo- a meeting in a boardroom with all men. Well, you know what? They're gonna remember who I am. You know, you have you from a marketing standpoint. You have all these, you know, uh, you know, bankers or service providers or whoever it is, and they all look, you know, perhaps you know, somewhat similar, and they all have on a tie, and they all have on a, a nice suit or a, you know, they all look the same, or they're all wearing the same quote unquote corporate uniform. And I come in and I'm a woman, and a lot of women say, "Oh, it's you know, it's horrible." No, you go in, you have confidence in yourself, and you have the ability to stand out, you know, no one's going to say, oh, wait, who's, who said that? Was that Fred or was that Bob or was that Jerry? Or I don't remember if you said it, they'll probably remember you said it because you're the only woman in the
0: room. Yeah. I think we've been through so much here and I got to admit it was quite difficult to plan for this interview Vanessa purely because there's just so many aspects on the journey that we could touch upon. Uh, I could ask an episode's worth of questions on what you're doing now or the experience of that first job in the police department but I think some of the questions I've asked you might seem a bit obvious, uh, and then I'll be following up with, "Oh wow, what was that like? How did you respond to this?" But can I ask you uh, a strange question as as we uh, again, come to the finish? And th- and that is, what is the question that nobody asks you?
1: I think that one thing, and that people don't ask me, and maybe it's out of politeness, or you know, perhaps it's out of uh, you know just we talk about all these other really fascinating, interesting things and then we always run out of time. Um is a lot of people don't ask me about my failures and my personal failures. And and I always say that there's people that I worked, you know, with or worked for or worked for me that probably listen to what I'm saying and go and could come up with a hundred examples of well, she didn't do that in this particular instance. And they're probably accurate. (laughs) Um, I'm not perfect. You know, anyone who talks about leadership, and as I said, my audiences are sometimes women's groups, sometimes senior managers, sometimes, you know, um, more junior individuals who are just starting their career. Um, And what I say to them is based on my experiences, but I haven't already always followed it and I could name you and I, I won't to, not to embarrass myself uh, or them on a, a global podcast recording, but I can personally tell you, you know, probably 20 instances where I can think about that. I handled them so wrong and I would be humiliated if they were in print and maybe someday I will put them in print. <laughs> I don't think I'm brave enough to, uh, to yet, but um you know no one's perfect and i think that you have to give others very often a benefit of the doubt and grace and give yourself that as well sometimes and you know learn from those lessons we went over a lot of things that i saw and learned that from a positive perspective i was able to incorporate into my life and my style and the way that i do my jobs and, and just live as a member of the community that I'm in. Um, But there are also so many where I either saw a bad manager was a bad manager, was a bad employee. um, You know, nothing that's indictable, (laughs) you know, it's it's not nothing, uh, nothing illegal, indictable, you know, immoral, but um, just the choices that I made, um, you know, I would not make again in that situation, given what I know now and the maturity I know now. And I think the ability to recognize that as, as a leader and as an employee and just as a human um, and make that change in the future and think through, if ever this happens again, we have in police work, it's called it, and uh, and the military has as well. It's it's like an, it's an AAR, it's an after action report We're after a big call or a big mission and for the military, you sit down and you go over everything, what went right, what went wrong, and you focus a lot on what went wrong. And it could only be a few tiny things, but those are the things, it, this is not a pat yourself on the back and rah, rah, and we did a great job. Well, yeah, you might have had a successful mission, and there was this tiny thing that you need to focus on that didn't go well. And to incorporate that in the future takes a lot of maturity, and it takes a lot of of humility. And I'm, I'm not there yet. I don't pretend to be there yet, but I at least recognize that which is the first step and i, I try my best
0: uh, vanessa we've got some questions to finish with that we're asking every guest on this series and the first one is who from within the financial services world has inspired you
1: Ooh, there's so many people in so many different ways and I, i'm going to give you an an answer just um of it it's an answer that, that, that a lot of people constantly say, um, but there's a reason for that is a uh, Warren Buffett. And I think that goes back to the integrity, you know, he, he, he's someone who he knows what he does. He knows his lane. He knows his limitations. There's an enormous amount of, of humility that's involved, um, and, you know, admits when he's wrong. Um, <laughs> he's in, infamously, you know, he's, he didn't want to get into the technology space and he'll readily admit that that was an incredible, um, incredibly um, um, complex decision that he made for a lot of reasons. And he was wrong, but um, I, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of different teaching and, you know, when I'm talking and teaching about um, ethics, there was one quote from him that I, I always use. And he said, in terms of hiring um he has three things he looks for in, in someone. And one is intelligence. And the other is, um, is energy. And the last is integrity. And if they don't have that last piece, if they don't have that integrity, the first two are going to, you know, the first two are going to kill you <laughs> because, you know, if you have someone who has intelligence and drive and energy and they don't have integrity they can do an enormous amount of damage um and uh if you have someone integrity with integrity um you can teach a lot of of skills you can teach a lot of hard skills if someone's intelligent i'm not talking about education um you can teach things if they have a desire to learn but that integrity piece it's very very difficult to develop that if there's not a moral compass that that already exists
0: where does inspiration from outside of your professional life come from
1: i think one thing is uh it's such a it's such a again an an obvious answer but it really is is a fact is you know my parents um they always supported me in what i wanted to do and uh they weren't always you know probably thrilled with my decisions (laughs) um but they never pressured me into moving um in one direction or or another um so i i i i think you only appreciate those things once you're you know i'm forty eight yeah you, know, you probably appreciate those once you're you're in your forties not certainly not in your twenties and absolutely not in your teens um i think the other the other inspiration that i had um it's outside my professional financial life but um i'm i'm changed the question a little bit because it was professionally through law enforcement um the uh uh, the first chief I had, chief Harry Wilde, um, he, um, he was such a mentor and in an era that women were, you know, not thought of as, um, equal in so many ways in policing, you know, they were brought in to do, you know, you had to have them because they had to do female prisoner searches and female prisoner transports. And, you know, they're great with kids or they can work in the juvenile bureau, um, he, from the time I was a police explorer, he just, you know, was there 110% for me, encouraging me, um, you know, continuing to follow my career, um, you know, constantly supporting me, uh, you know, um, just it, it, it again, I have, I've never worked directly for a woman, but when you have bosses who aren't like you, be that race or gender or anything, you know, they can be your biggest advocates. Um, and he, you know, the, I'm, I'm very proud the Cranford police department. They now have, you know, um, five female officers. Um, and, uh, and then that, that's a, in a department of about 50 to, to give you a, a, a perspective. Um, and it was, you know, it was chief wild who decided that he was going to integrate and hire the the first one to start that. And it's it's not just uh, doing that. It's doing that and believing in it and supporting it.
0: Thanks. And uh, I know you've given a lot of life lessons uh, throughout this episode. But my final question is, if you had to pick one of those to pass on to others, what would it be?
1: Yeah. And I think I'll, I'll follow up just by um, encouraging all your listeners just to be lifelong learners and to be as adaptable as possible and you know, not to stagnate, and um, that involves so much. That involves certainly, um, you know, staying abreast of what's happening in your industry, but so much beyond that. It's informally being a lifelong learner. So seeking out people with different opinions than yourself, um, talking to those whose experiences are different than yours. Um, you know, creating. You know, the, the word diversity is thrown around so much now that I, I almost. hate using it, but, you know, forming diverse teams and listening to them because they come from a different place and they're going to have different ideas of how to, you know, manage the task at hand um, and and value those opinions. So um, it's formal learning and much more importantly, informal learning.
0: Vanessa you've been a wonderful guest today uh, I literally have been on the edge of my seat and sometimes even up and down out of it I guess that's what happens when you're not in a studio together I've sort of found myself suddenly standing up and staring out of a window halfway through your story at times It's it's really been captivating and you've taken us all on a journey today uh, so we really appreciate your openness in, in talking about your experience the various issues and, and giving takeaways so thanks for sharing and uh, maybe in series two we can dedicate a whole episode to failing and go through some of those stories
1: absolutely that will probably force me to actually sit down and uh <laughs> write some of them down and think through those parts <laughs>
0: <laughs> absolutely well vanessa one last time thanks very much for being on this show
1: great thank you so much john a
0: pleasure Thanks for listening today and thanks again to our sponsors Smartstream who have supported us through this series along with their clients and even as I've discovered myself, frontline workers through donations they've made during this period. If you like what you've heard today, make sure you subscribe and keep an eye out each week for new episodes or listening on globalcustodian.com. Thanks again.